0: Welcome back to The Hardcore Therapist, where we explore topics related to mental health and personal growth. I'm your host, Sarah, and today we have an important discussion ahead. We want to emphasize right from the start that this podcast episode does not replace the need for professional therapy. It is crucial to acknowledge that while self-help and self-improvement tools can be valuable, they are not a substitute from therapy when needed. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Hardcore Therapist. I am so excited. I have kate 08 on krishna core band uh, 108 new york hardcore scene straight edge into krishna consciousness as a teen project kate all these amazing things and while i am so excited but besides that i really enjoy her music i've this is my first one on my podcast and i think that's super cool and i can't wait to get to know you more how are you i'm good i'm really good <laughs> good um. So usually when I start, I ask people about like what influenced them in hardcore. So I'm okay. really curious where that starts, and then I'd love to know more your story and what you're doing. I mean, I know you teach yoga. You're doing a PhD program
1: now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm super stoked. Which is crazy, that. but yeah, yeah. We can talk about. It. <laughs> yes, um, let's go. <laughs> so, for for in terms of hardcore, I think for me that um my my earliest sort of introduction to hardcore came from a friend of mine who I'm, I'm a woman I'm still friends with and um, she was from Brooklyn but she had a house in upstate New York um, like a summer house and her mom is an artist and you know she's just kind of she's five years older than me so I actually met her when I was eight which seems oh crazy crazy yeah and she but she and she was 13 and she was you know kind of like a city kid so she just knew a lot more about music so even at age 13 she started to introduce me to to music and I, I'm trying to think of like that would have been 1980 so I was eight in 1980 yeah I was eight years old in 1980 so right away she was already kind of into a lot of different kinds of music like the clash and I, I don't know if the clash would have been I don't know if that came immediately but it was pretty soon thereafter like a few years later I was already she would bring me up to her room and she had a lot of vinyl records and she would play uh like the tubes and she played you know kind of first it was like first it was new wave music you know I got into Blondie and um and there were all let's see and, and ska music too she was into ska music and I was also I actually it's funny because everybody makes fun of ska music but that's kind of part of I my I love ska music <laughs> so she had um madness and this and the specials and all that stuff and she got me into that and then when I was about I think I was a seventh grader I think I was 12 my mom let me go to Brooklyn by myself and then my friend Merritt actually took me to first to CBGB's then we went to this there used to be something called Rack America which was like a friend of ours worked at and she would um she would edit like videos for MTV. Oh my god! <laughs> She's actually in the book, um, the matinee. The, yeah. the book called Matinee. She's in that book. Her name is Michelle Scorka. And Michelle was like the first true punk rocker I knew, and I was like way into. It. As soon as I saw like what it looked like and what it was going to be like and everything, and it also was my like my dad took me to see um, to see Re- Repo Man oh yeah at this local mm-hmm. art art theater that I actually just went to last night to see another great movie called Origin which everybody should see but basically I I was like okay I, I know I want to be a punk rocker but it was just like hard you know you like I, you live in upstate New York it's 1983 or 4 or something like there's no all you could do is kind of like try to fashion your own like punk rockers outfit and yeah. stuff like that like and look at pictures of punk rockers. and like, you'd have to cut your own hair and there was no hair dye you could get or anything. So you to kind of, you had to kind of make it happen. But I was, I was into it, but um, Michelle and Mara one day came, my mom sent them to my, my public school in upstate New York when I was in seventh grade to pick me up. And it was like the greatest, like John Hughes movie ever. Cause like I was there and like upstate New York, it's like all kind of like, the local people like farmers and kids with flannel shirts and work boots and like you know legit farmer kids and in companies like gin, 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 these two cool <laughs> pump girls one is like she had tattoos of pumpkins and halloween like bats <laughs> and stuff and my other friend and she had like she had her hair dyed like she had manic panic which was yeah. like impossible to find it she had like cool punk hair and they had like creepers and like, I was like, I, I have achieved, I've achieved the height of human existence. So they, they were the ones that really introduced me to, to punk and hardcore and um like Reagan youth. And then the beastie boys, when they were a hardcore band, and I was yeah. like really little, you know, I was like 12, but I actually was like one of those 12 year old girls that was like fully grown. Like I'm the same height now that I was yeah. then. And, um and so Pretty soon after that, like we had, like you know, Mara. My her name is Mara. She had like a radio, and she could pick up the the Albany, the SUNY Albany radio show, which was, you know, I don't know exactly what the the year was. Probably a little later, eighty five, eighty six, eighty five. I think she, and there was a guy who who is this guy Dave Stein who did the radio show at at U Albany, whatever it was. I can't remember the name of the radio station, but. And he would play hardcore and punk records. And so we kind of like figured it out that there was hardcore and punk like was starting to happen in Albany. So when I was at the end of eighth grade and I had my dad, <laughs> at the time you would see flyers. That's how you would find out. So I was like right. walking down our, our cool street in Albany, which is called Lark Street. And there was like a flyer for um Black Flag playing at the SUNY Campus Ballroom. So I... Had my dad drop me off at the edge of the SUNY campus. <laughs> I think about it now because now I'm doing a PhD there program there at SUNY, <laughs> and um and I walked in and just like, you know, went found my way to the student center and went to the you know went to see Black Flag and another band that was Dave Steins band called Albany Style opened up for them,
0: uh-huh.
1: and I was about to change schools and go to a different high school and some of the kids from my new high school were actually at black flag so I was like okay this is going to be a way better change for me I'm going to go to like a punk rock high school which I which I kind of did actually although they weren't as into it as I was like nobody was nobody was that into it so that was my first show and then I figured out once you were there you were like started to be hooked in because there was a social network so at that show I got like a flyer for another show which was at this at the BFW hall um, which was really at, at this still just a few blocks from my house now. And, um, and it was, I think it was like seven seconds and, you know, it was like all these really pretty cool old school bands that yeah. nasty played there. Um, the descendants played there. So I started to go and then once you were hooked in, you know, and my, my punk style was like. I had jeans and I like bleached them. Like I put bleach. I bleached anarchy signs and peace symbols onto the jeans because I was trying to, (laughs) I was trying to have some, like, I didn't know exactly know. Like, and then like, um, I cut my hair like really short on one side and long on the other side. And then I would put on like black eyeliner and I had combat boots from the army Navy store. And then you would tie like a flannel shirt around your waist, and you were like, "Okay, I'm ready for I'm I'm punk," you know. And we were living
0: just... par- we were living parallel, like the exact same yeah. life in like the summer. Oh, one. When's your birthday?
1: Yeah. May twelfth. Okay, yeah, I'm, yes. I'm like two weeks older. I'm a one month older than you. <laughs> so it was actually that that year of eighth grade, and so in 1986, that that it was April of 1986. Like I had just turned 14, and that's when I went to the Black Flag show. And then after that, it was like, I was committed, I just never stopped going. And my whole social circle became the kids from that world. And some of the kids from my high school would either come with me, or I would, you know, hang out with them, or I would just go on my own. And my, my mom lived out in, <clears throat> in the country. But my dad lived in Albany. So I try to like, go to my dad's house, so I could go to the, the shows, to the co- to the shows. Yeah, <laughs> basically, you know, and and he, he didn't really like, have any rules or anything for me or like really do too much parenting actually, which was such a blessing actually. Like he just was more open to allow me to just take care of myself and stuff. So it sounds like he was irresponsible, but it wasn't like that. It was like, he had like a no censorship rule for movies. So yeah, <laughs> he took me to this. He took me to see the movie Salvador, which was like really traumatizing. Like I think it was around that time. It was like, I was like, so like, oh, uh- <laughs> it's was, it was about like the uh sandinistas killing nuns and oh. and so there, i can't remember because i don't know the politics of that very well but it was a really famous um famous movie um that everybody should watch but it was about the you know the united states like empowering people to overthrow the democratic government of I, I, anyway it's called sandinista and you can't watch no it's called salvador it's called salvador, salvador. salvador. But my dad took me to that and he took me he took me to see um, he took me to see Repo Man. He's like, there's punk rockers in there. I, you're going to like it. So, you know, they were all little influences. And my mom really did. Actually, I was couldn't drive yet. I was 14 years old. So she, she helped me like manifest my my hardcore fantasies. And then I, I did wind up. Already at that age, going to New York City on the train and and going to CBGBs, yeah. So and I and I was able to get rides to go to the Anthrax. So I was pretty little actually. and i was yeah.
0: Can you imagine a, your kids doing that? I, there's like I I think of the things. Like, there's no way there's I would no ever have
1: let my children do what I, my parents <laughs> let me do. It would be like completely not okay. <laughs> but uh, it was the 80s. Like people let their kids. You know, if they didn't know where I was, they didn't know what I was doing. They had no clue and I was. I was like at these shows, but they were, you know, they were, it was a good community actually. So, yeah. so I enjoyed it and it was fun. And I wound up, you know, meeting friends and I'm still friends with now at those places.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing how that is. And it's funny. Cause like when you're talking about 1980, I was like 1980, like I was su- super into the stray cats, which I know is hilarious.
1: Like that... I did No, I love the stray cats too,
0: <laughs> but it was like, Other kids my age were definitely not into the Stray Cats, right? Like, it was like, they're like, what eight-year-old has posters of Brian Setzer on there?
1: Right, and (laughs) also, yeah, completely. And also there was, you know, I think um, Rock the Casbah came out when I was maybe in seventh grade. And I remember having, like, saving up all my money. And there was one, like, there was Tape World at the mall. And I went and I bought a clash t-shirt and it was yeah. like, my whole identity was that one t-shirt. Yes. You know, I didn't have, I just had that one t-shirt and it was like, that was my whole identity.
0: I totally so, got that. No. And yeah. I, it's funny. Like all the things that you talk about doing, like I wore, co- like I would go to the army Navy store and buy combat boots, but that were always so big on me, which were ridiculous looking. Like I could never find like, cause I wear kind of small shoes for as tall as I am and like, I would, you know, same thing, like bleach my jeans, put safety pins in my jeans, do whatever I could, Yeah,
1: you know, a hundred percent. I would have like a hundred peg my jeans with like a hundred safety pins. And I was like, I'm punk rock.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And we had a college radio station um, at at the community college. And my friend at the time, Chris Riley, who I'm still, I still, you know, run into occasionally he would, he made me like a mixtape of the radio station, like the punk show. And I was like, this is it. This is everything for me.
1: Right I was like funny too because they played like a Dougie Fresh song and I like had it I recorded it off the college radio station and then I like memorized all the words. Yeah because there was always this like you know punk and hip-hop or like rap music were kind of you know there was some parallel between them. For sure. So yeah some of the stuff that I had was literally like and and that guy Dave Stein would he would make everybody mixtape so he made me mixtape with like Dag Nasty and seven seconds and Stalag 13. And, you know, it was it was my I mean, only through social networking and being with other people your age, were you able to find out any of this stuff? There wasn't any other way to find it out. Right. It's like, you can't even imagine that now. You know, it's like, no, it's, no. it's just not even like possible. So a
0: very different world. So you I know your mom like introduced you to yoga when you were young. And then, you know, but did she introduce you to Bhakti when you were young or was?
1: No, that was all heart from hardcore. Okay. I mean, I, you know, you kind of, you know, looking back, it wasn't that different. Like they were devotees of Ramakrishna. So they weren't like my mom was fr- that she was friends with, but I didn't really make the connection. Right. The connection to Bhakti really just for me came through hardcore. I, yeah. you know, just knowing like people were Krishnas and this and that, and like, you know, the cro and, um, you know, I knew people joined the Krishnas like that was something that was known I didn't exactly know why and everything although when I was fifteen I think I was I'm pretty sure I was fifteen I was in tenth grade and I remember this only because it goes with the Waldorf School curriculum where you're studying Thoreau and Emerson mm-hmm. and I went to a show in New York City and then Steve my who's now my husband and then and Ray Kappa were at the krishna like at the krishna temple in brooklyn and they were going to drive back to albany so like at the time i didn't want to spend six dollars on the train which is right it's literally six dollars to get to poughkeepsie which is crazy that is crazy six dollars what <laughs> so but that was a show get, yeah they were like we can give you a ride i think i saw them at the show and they were like we can give you a ride back to albany tomorrow or you know i, I lived on the way to albany Well, they could take the Taconic Parkway and drop me off at my mom's house. So I met them at the temple. And, you know, it was interesting because I went into the temple and there was like, you know, how smell is like one of the senses that gives you like the best, it's like, is connected the most deeply to your memory. Yeah. So I walked in and I was like, ooh, this smells like the Radhakrishna or to the Ramakrishna temple that I had gone to when I was a kid. It felt familiar. And then they had made, they had made um, like some type of, you know, there was food from the temple there and there was halava, which was like a sweet. Yeah. And somehow it was something I had tasted as, as a kid with my mom, you know, it was familiar to me, but also it was definitely through them that I, you know, and then we were, I was reading Bhagavad Gita because it was a text that inspired Henry David Thoreau and the American transcendentalists. And so I had some, some, connection to it and they were like well do you know Bhagavad Gita and I was like well actually I do know the Bhagavad Gita because I I know Thoreau and Emerson and they spoke about the Gita and then they were brand new brand new to Krishna consciousness and they just like tried their best to tell me every single thing that they knew that they had learned in the temple as brand new like temple kids Um, so basically the whole entire ride home they were telling me you know there's you're trying to replace the the experience of the five senses with, uh, you know, material senses with sacred things. I remember it really well. You know? So you're smelling incense and your hands are that your sense of touch is satisfied by touching the beads and you're, <clears throat> and you're, you're hearing that you're hearing senses rather than just hearing garbage or it's being fulfilled by hearing this transcendental, the transcendent sounds of the names of God and you know, I just remember them going through all that stuff and just feeling like, okay, that's interesting, you know. But there's so much also negative propaganda about you know Vaishnavism in America being a cult, which it's it's right. actually not. It's a it's just a a religion that comes from India that's counter to what we understood as religion and especially in the 1980s. Yeah. So that's really my introduction. But I did do physical yoga asana with my mom. <clears throat> And she had like a yoga group at the house. I don't think it lasted too long, but she had one of the ashram people come down and they would do, you know, sun salutations and some yoga, yoga practices. And my mom taught me. And also I was like, it was the time when there wasn't much to do when you were a kid. So my mom, one of the ashram people gave my mom a book called about kids yoga. And it showed like a little Indian boy and, in like a, like a dodi like, and he could, his it showed like his back being not that flexible to being really flexible by practicing. Yeah. So I, I wanted to practice. I wanted to try it. And I wanted to, I wanted to become flexible like the boy. I can remember I had an orange cover and I think it was called like kids. I wish I, I wish I could find it again. I don't know who wrote it or anything, but, um, and it showed the kid, like the before and after pictures of him doing yoga, yoga poses and the the change in his body. So I would I would like put the book out on this. We had a little like an outdoor porch and I would put the book out and I would like try to do the yoga poses so I could become flexible like the boy. And then I also went one time because I took music lessons at the ashram. Um and I went one time when I was a kid and they had like a children's retreat. And at the children's and you know it was all it was really a retreat for the adults and then they had like a children's program and my mom wasn't serious about it, but she let me kind of go. Like I, I went. I took myself to the retreat. Okay. <laughs> I think I was seven. It just seems crazy. And I, my mom let me ride my bike up the hill, and I like found them in the ashram, where in one of the meditation rooms, which was I was familiar with because I took. I may have been eight or nine, but I I was familiar with it because I took my music lessons there.
0: Yeah. So
1: so I like you know knew my way around the ashram building and so I went and I I uh, joined and they were singing a kirtan
0: oh amazing Uh, yeah
1: and I I liked singing I was always into music and singing and this and that so in every form you know from from like being in the choir and being in the orchestra and the band and everything I was always playing music in some form so they were singing and I I joined them to, to sing and that was like my first time I ever was in a kirtan
0: that's oh, so cool
1: yeah it's crazy right yeah <laughs> it seems it so funny enough.
0: no yeah. it's it's funny it's just you know the story too about just having your mom just okay go ahead and you just rode your bike up the hill
1: yeah i rode my bike <laughs> it was a really steep hill i'm like i remember it being really hard i'd be like cranking on my little <laughs> no speed bike banana seat purple bike
0: it's <laughs> so great
1: with a groovy flower banana seed yeah you know, i had a flower banana seed the, too the long hand like i had streamers on the handles
0: totally mine was yellow yeah. and pink it like kind of had nice. a hawaiian feel
1: nice nice yeah <laughs> i think i got a I got a 10 speed when i was like an eighth grade or seventh grade and it was like a really big deal i really wanted a 10 speed i thought it was going to change everything I, I, it definitely helps you know because when you have no speeds on your yeah. bike and you're just cranking and you go pedal backwards to break you know that was that was some tough tough engineering challenges
0: totally I got one for my bat mitzvah like that was that was something I remember having a so I could ride my bike to middle school if I needed to nice wow that's
1: (laughs) awesome
0: I remember it was blue that one was blue like these are the things that you were nice yeah yeah you you, you say it and then all of a sudden like boop in your memory and there it is
1: yeah it was so a big cool. deal you know because you wanted to roll down handlebars and that was yeah. like the move yeah totally <laughs>
0: that's hilarious <laughs> so okay so you grew up in albany you went to a waldorf school you're you then changed high schools right like that was kind of the thing or no i
1: went to a public school and then i went to waldorf high school oh you did okay that's, that's yeah and that fun. was that was outside of albany and i i grew up living with my mom and she lived in something which is called green County and it's on one side of the Hudson river. And then we moved to the other side of the Hudson river into Columbia County, which is like now the most expensive County in the New York state. (laughs) I don't know. It's where Hudson is. So like, it's, it's like so weird and funny, but at the time it was like a hippie town, you know, and, and just people at the Waldorf school and very local people. And we're the only people that live there. And now you have like this wealthy Brooklynites movie stars and the local people that live there. But wow! my husband and I recently bought a house in Albany Oh, cool. uh, because uh, which is where my dad always lived so I Albany was where I went to shows basically okay
0: okay yeah. cool and and so so you was when you were 15 when you went to that show was that when you met Steve or was that
1: I met Steve when before that I was I was younger than that I met him because he would put the shows on at um At 288 and also at the BFW and at the Hibernians hall. So I actually knew him like I met him when I was like 14. I met I think I met him at that either at that black flag show or like within the month of that that black flag show. Yeah.
0: And so him and Ray Raganath. What and they and and they're and they're very good friends still, right? You're all very good friends. Yes, they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So you're down in New York. I just i want to understand like i want to understand more like i i've heard but i think people want would want to hear like how you got into krishna consciousness from that point where you're like i know about the Bhagavad Vita, i read through like
1: well basically like because i was so much younger i mean at, you know steve is seven years older than me so he wasn't it was just like a friendship and ba- basically then he and ray he left albany and he moved to the Krishna farm. They First, they moved into the Brooklyn Temple together. Yeah, And then then Steve wound up moving to the Krishna farm. And Raghunath Re- went there for like 10 minutes. And his main contribution to farming was, according to my husband, owning a pair of overalls. But <laughs> he really didn't have it. He didn't have it in him to do be a farmer. Like, it wasn't cut out for that. And my husband became very serious about his spiritual life. And he became a brahmachari. I mean, he wasn't my husband then. He was just... Steve ready some guy that i knew and i was still in like you know 10th grade 11th grade 12th grade and i just knew he'd like gone off and joined the krishnas and i was like okay i guess that's it you know and then <clears throat> i think i was in college and i was playing um i was playing some music i did my the first the first iteration of project kate was uh alan cage and sergio vega both right in the band and I, and we would practice in Alan's basement and Alan and Sergio I think lived together and, and you know it seemed like the super ghetto now but it was on Union Street and and Park Slope yeah and at the time it was like you know still you could rent a whole house there for just a little bit and they lived there with their girlfriends and in the basement we would practice and somehow I came down the stairs and he was like Alan was like oh man I, I think it was this so memory I know is malleable so if anyone's hearing this and this isn't accurate but this is just according to my memory he's like yeah it's Steve Reddy and I remember Richie Birkin had told me I saw Steve Reddy he, he is like totally culted out and he's like he was I saw him like there's a parade in New York and I saw him out there and he's dressed in orange and doing book distribution and I was like oh my god what You know, I didn't really, I was like, that's a little too much. Like you're supposed to be into Krishna and like wear the neck beads, but like really moving into the temple. Not that many people did it. Right. And I was like, Oh God. And he would write me letters. Like we would write letters and his letters would be like, his letters sounded like really crazy. And he would be like, just chant the Holy names of the, of the son of Nanda and become fearless. And I'd be like, okay, that's really weird, you know? (laughs) But then, then, Something happened with him at the farm and there was, you know, like because there's human beings, there was some political, you know, upheaval where at the farm, which is called Girinagri and he wanted to leave the farm because they were making decisions about farming that he didn't agree with. And he kind of left the farm and somehow, and I don't know how, like, he was like kind of giving up being a monk and he had this metalhead girlfriend named Trisha, And I bumped into them (laughs) I bumped into them at Lollapalooza, which is in, oh outside of Albany, which is yeah. crazy because there were like 20,000 people there. Yeah.
0: So, like the first one, one Henry Rollins, uh, Rollins yeah. band played. Okay. Yeah. Yep.
1: I went to that. And Jane's Addiction. Yeah. And, and we were all really into Jane's Addiction. You know, we we're like, although they weren't good, it was like body count, Jane's Addiction. And I right. was like, I think hardcore is dead. There are people who are not hardcore mashing on a right. grassy knoll at saratoga performing arts center that's just this gun off the rails but i i bumped into steve and i by then i was i think i was 19 and yeah i was 19 and then i always of course i always had a crush on him because he was like king scene and i was like 14 <laughs> but i was like it was you know it was nothing like that you know so but and he had kind of asked about me, like, whatever happened to that girl, Kate? Is she, like, still into hardcore or something? And they're like, yeah, she's – but she's really pretty now. <laughs> oh, my God. Because, you know, when you're a 14-year-old girl and you have, like, a shaved head and, like, you're like, you know, I wasn't. But anyway, basically, he um, – we kind of started to – like, I guess I got his – I think he was saying his parents, and I got his parents. It was a no pre cell phone. Parents' phone number, and then we, like – hung out and and then we just were like friends and then I was you know then then I kind of we started to date you know and when we got I went back to school in New York this was like on my winter break maybe my freshman year of college maybe my no it wasn't my freshman year I was dating somebody else (laughs) (laughs) it was the next year and at least one person at that um and It was, I think it was the summer. I think it was the end of my second year of college. And we started to date. Yeah, it was, that's when it was. And um, basically he took me to the temple. He was like, he was like, he was going to leave the whole thing. And then he was like, no, I think I'm going to just do the moderate version of it. He couldn't stay away. It was like the practices were really important to him for his well-being. And so he was like, do you want to go to the temple with me? And I went with my friend Mara she was not into it at all. Yeah, I was like into it. And I just was like hook, line and sinker. Like after that first Sunday feast on the Kirtan and the, and the feast and the taste of the food and the the atmosphere, I was like, this is going to be my thing. And also, you know, it was like, part of it was like, it was very much like hardcore signaling to be into Krishna. Yeah, And it was like a lot of the cool people from hardcore were into Krishna. So, um, Basically, I think I started to go to the feast, and then the whole next fall, I went to the. You know, you start. You're uh, also you're like a hardcore kid, and you're in college, so there's like free food, so you're like,
0: yeah, to go, and you're like,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like really good. So I basically kept going, and then he had he kind of moved back to the farm. He went on tour with Into Another. He went first. He went to California. Then he went on tour with Into Another, and then. Because we were just like, kind of liked each other, but then he came all the way back, and um. And over that Christmas break, it became like serious between us. We went to the temple, and then he moved back to the farm, and then I went for Gorapani, which is the appearance day of Chaitanya. I went yeah. down there. We, were, I remember too, like he was hanging out with Purcell, and he was like, we were watching, um. Dances with Wolves, and then suddenly they were like. F- what are we doing? Why are we like here watching a movie where well, that's it? We're going to move to the Krishna farm. Literally <laughs> in the middle of the night, They bar- we borrowed Richie Birkenhead's van. <laughs> we we're like, it's Gorpanim. We put a bunch of the stuff in the van. Like we rolled up Purcell's futon and they were like going to move in and they stayed. I went back to the city to finish school. Cause I was in school, but by the next, you know, it would all happen like rapid fire. Um, I moved to the farm on by after school let out in may it was and i remember this specifically because it was lord nishingadev's birthday yeah and so i moved there that summer and then i went to school in the fall and then i i went to india in january and i took the spring semester off and i thought it was going to delay my college but you might not know this about me but i sang in the choir at my school yeah (laughs) and i had accrued enough because you could do it every semester Yeah, I'd accrued enough credits that I could graduate on time from being in the choir. It's like a big joke. My husband thinks it's hilarious.
0: It's very, I I mean, it kind of like
1: college singers. (laughs) And I, it was interesting too because I went to the new school for social research, which is this, and it still was and is this very left-wing, crazy political place. I went to school with Ani DeFranco. She's like, like two years older than me. She was in school at the same time. I was taking the classes after she was taking them. So I just got her biography and I'm like, yes, I took that class. I read those books. You were in the class before me, you know? And I, I, at the time, and I did actually get her like demo tape in the hallway kind of thing. She recorded cassettes and I think she must have dubbed them or something. Anyway, (laughs) so yeah, it was this really exciting time of music. And, you know, it was like the music that was happening was like you know, because I was living in New York City too, it was like burn and quicksand and um later Orange Nine Millimeter. And then, you know, then we had this whole Krishna like place where we all lived together. A bunch of us like who had lived in the temple and gone on the shelter one oh eight tour. We basically left there and we went and lived in this loft together on twenty fourth street. Yeah. And that was where, you know, it was me and um me, Tip Owen, who started J Tree Records. Yeah. Um, Norm Arviness, or actually, he has a different name now, Norman right. Brannon. Norman Brannan. and he was, um, you know, it was like Texas is the reason was happening, and we were just like, yeah, whatever, yada yada yada. But I don't <laughs> think we, I don't think we ever like realized that what was really like the impact of what everybody was doing. Yeah. At the time, but we were just all friends, you know, and we were hanging out and making music. And, you know, that was when we, uh, 108 got started and I went on tour with 108 and in shelter that first year, and it was 1993. So it was actually between my junior, and there was a, an action packed four years between my junior and senior year of college.
0: I saw that show. And,
1: in yeah. Detroit. And then yeah. <laughs> that was with the tour that you were, we were in Detroit. Yeah. yeah. There was not a
0: lot of people there. I don't know if you remember. I, you probably don't remember. I but think the
1: Detroit show was kind of shitty. Maybe that's why I blanked it out. <laughs> it was the yeah, so- actually my
0: favorite. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. Like that's good. I'm life. glad because I
1: think sometimes you're just like so tired. You've been touring. We did sixty dates, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And then you're just like you play these shows, and there were some of the shows were amazing. Most of them were amazing, but some had like you know one time we we played a show with Refused, like far above the Nordic Circle, right and I think there were there was this enormous, beautiful theater and there were like 10 people there and I yeah. was just like, can we just not play? Like,
0: <laughs> can we just hang out instead?
1: <laughs> can we just like not do this? You know, because it's <laughs> kind of like weird and humiliating to play for like no people. So, um, yeah. And I remember Detroit too was a thing that there was supposed to be this like really cool famous guy who was a devotee and he had he had been the actual ronald mcdonald clown yeah and then he he left there and he became like a devotee and they were like yeah he's really i don't know why on earth they thought the guy that played the ronald mcdonald clown was like gonna be super like legit and like really 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 rich but like i remember it was a thing that shelter was gonna get to go to his house and it was gonna be awesome and he was gonna be super it was gonna be you know because shelter always got like more props and we did and 108 was like all right we'll just stay at some girl's house and it was like really off you know and now now in retrospect but I guess like the house was like really creepy and weird it was like a if it was like a gross house we would call it a skull house and it was really big but it was we they called it a skull mansion and it was like horrible and you know the the place some of the places you stayed on tour you'd just be like I can't I can't do this like, I remember one place that we walked, and these kids were so, they were trying so hard, and I feel bad even saying about, like, we walked in, and, like, our legs got instantly covered with fleas, and I was like, oh I, I can't sleep on this floor. Like, I cannot sleep on this floor. Like, there's no way I'm going to lay on the floor, like, covered in fleas all night. Like, I just can't do it. I I remember that was, like, a breakdown point where I was like, I, 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 I might call my dad. I might actually call my dad again. <laughs> get out of here. You know, it was just so intense. And I think that night we, we never would spend money on a hotel, but I think we were like, we, we actually have to sleep somewhere clean and we packed everybody into like two hotel rooms or something. Cause we just, we were like, this is, this is beyond the level. This is just yeah. beyond the level. Um, We had a couple of places, things like that in Europe too, you know, like the shelter, I mean, the 108 refuse tour where they were like, okay, here's what you're saying. And you're like, this is at the club in the room with all the video games, which are on and they're just like making noise and like lit up. And you're just like, you're so exhausted. And you're just like, how am I going to do this? You know, then we just, we did, we, we slept in that room. We were like, it was, it was pretty brutal. (laughs) It's pretty brutal. So,
0: so so when I, when I, when I, usually when I do the podcast too, I talk about like mental health, obviously, because yes, I'm a therapist. No, 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 it's totally fine. What do you think touring like that does to a person's mental health?
1: Well, it gave me incredible distress tolerance levels. (laughs) I don't know how else to describe it. (laughs)
0: That's perfect.
1: Yeah. So all touring requires that. People that tour have to have really amazing distress tolerance so either they either, you know, like for us, we're Krishna's and we're straight edge. So sometimes we just cried and screamed and it was, it was definitely pushed a lot, a lot of buttons. I mean, I think there are other people that, that drink a bottle of vodka as they're driving. Yeah. Um. So I don't necessarily think people always use good coping mechanisms yeah. to, to deal with a, you know, you're playing for half an hour and you're probably traveling, not eating, you know, all the things that like support mental health and yes. I'm not a therapist, but I'm a person who's gone to therapy and also <laughs> I'm a yoga teacher. But like, you know, you're, you're dehydrated. You're, you're probably eating food that mainly comes from a convenience store. Yeah. Um, and for whatever reason, the Krishnas would always, they'd be like, we're going to bring you food and they would bring us like cookies. And so you, we were eating like tons of sugar. Which is really is not good for your mental health. No, it is
0: not at all.
1: We were sleep deprived, like beyond belief and sleeping in piles of people and traveling, which just like unbalances you all the time. And then you just get up on stage and play. And if you were sick, you play. I remember I had like probably a strep throat like in Sweden and you were like, all right get up there and just like do it you know because you're there you have to do it you had no options I mean I guess you had options but we didn't feel like we did right so um, so I think it just puts a lot of toll and you know I think that bands break up because of it because Mm I just can't and and also like just because you're good at making music with people they're not actually people you necessarily I mean 108 is now but also we had this whole other factor with 108 was I was a female and they were trying there was like trying to have separation of the sexes which is just you know which or i should really say genders really just ridiculous you know and i was so grateful to do it but i definitely felt disconnected from the guys in the band and i didn't have like heartfelt conversations with them and stuff it was it was really nice to be with refuse because they didn't have that and they would like actually interact with me in a loving way so it was pretty it was definitely like taxing on on your mental health but we were kind of like had a lot of grit so we got through it
0: yeah no I got that It
1: made us have a lot more grit than we might have and we wanted we wanted to be on stage and share our music and share our like message I guess if you would if you will that sounds a little pretentious but we wanted to do all of those things so that required that we got through the other stuff and we toughed it out but it was not always, it was not always pretty.
0: (laughs) No, for sure. Well, and I think it's just different, you know, being a woman in hardcore though, also, and being in, in bands like that, like your experience is going to be very different than your male counterparts. And, and I think that, you know, it would take a different toll on your mental health than other people. And I mean, I just, to be honest, like, I can't even imagine I mean, I know, like, going to gross places, like, like, being in people's homes that I'm like, I can't stay here or things like that. Well, and
1: there's other things that you don't think about. Like, if you're a guy on tour, you don't get your period. Right. So you're like, can we go to the bathroom again, like, pull over or you're like, in a gross place. And you like, really just, you know, you just like, need a shower so badly or something like that, that you just, and and because there was no, um, there was no acknowledgement of that even as part of my like reality it was just like i just hit it you know and i just but sometimes i'd be like weepy you know and they'd be like why are you weepy i'd be like i'm no reason you know because we weren't open about those things which is funny because now like you know those dudes are like the coolest totally non-alpha male type guys ever right it's like you know it's really like I, could, I probably could have been more open, but we just didn't have any, you know, kind of we did not have any template for it. So, you know, those things were challenging, but um, I don't know if it took necessarily took a toll on my mental health. Other things in my life have taken much greater tolls on my mental health. But yeah. in some ways that gave me it was a path to freedom because I overcame so much. And I don't think of it as something that damaged me. I think of something that made me a stronger person, actually.
0: I think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's, I I guess that was like one of my big questions is like, I'm assuming that, you know, I mean, hardcore has made me a stronger person and has made me the person who I am, even though I never played in a band. I did. I mean, I did other things. I was definitely a photographer. I have a a BFA and MA um, before I I went into therapy and, um, you know, it it definitely like that, that piece of community was a super important part of making me who I am and focusing on, you know, like the, this was like a family, right. Like to, you know, and, and I think that that's a, that is a reason I think a lot of us, at least, at least here, I will say a lot of us in Detroit came together. Um,
1: Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, it was like a kinship replacement system, mm -hmm. like and we had our own rules and also there was um like a vast ability or a vast quantity of acceptance that was available to all the kind of misfits from the other places in the world like you know if you were a misfit in your high school you found a community in in hardcore i mean we just did it was yeah. really really fulfilling in that way and and I definitely did, you know, and I, you know, hardcore still to this day, like most of my really close friends are from the hardcore scene.
0: Yeah, same. That's amazing. Yeah,
1: And that's just so for me, like if I had to point to like, you know, and, and there are people that absolutely have my back 100 percent. And I'm just going to have to just go move up my body a little bit. No, I get um, that. that's OK, <laughs> so they, you know, for me, they were like people that, um, you know, 100 percent totally took care of each other, like in a way that you just don't have in other communities. Like, I don't know where else has that, you
0: know? No, me either. That's, I mean, that's part of the reason why I started doing this podcast was, you know, yeah, I'm a, I am a therapist, you know, I'm licensed therapist, but you know, what saved me and what helped me most of my life was the hardcore community, you know, more than, I mean, I mean, working out is a huge part of my life you know
1: 100%. Yeah. Yeah, like there's all, all these things.
0: things but I don't know that like even the gym I I go to um my coach is actually going to be on the show. Even the gym I go oh, cool. to there's like a tie to hardcore into it and I think that that's an important piece is uh, you know within mental health is making sure you're in a community that you feel welcomed and you know Krishna Krishna uh community is very welcoming.
1: Right. Well, sometimes, I mean, there was yeah. problems with it too, but like yeah, there the one, are
0: problems. the with version
1: everything. of it that I was into was really amazing. So yes. for me, um, and I have found so much of my, um, my community and my people in that world. Sorry. I was, I was also simultaneously cooking something that I forgot.
0: It's oh, that so funny. <laughs> I just had per, to give it a little stir. No, it's I all good. Like, Parmenando was on. Yeah. <laughs> Kamanada was on. He was making muffins while we were talking. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah.
1: (laughs) Sometimes it's like, you know, you gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. So totally.
0: I love that. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay, so I I feel bad. I like kind of cut you off with tour. And then, you know, I mean, and I know you told the story about when you went to the temple. Oh. She left. I don't know what happened, everyone. Let's pause this. are you there now? Oh, connecting to audio. So we, we lost, we lost you. Yeah, I, I,
1: okay. Sorry oh. about that. I hope that's not too much of a drag.
0: No, it's I mean, it's life. And that's yeah. you know, during my podcast. I don't edit anything. It's just like, boop. Like I had Joe yeah. come on and he was like, that was so, that's so, that's so Buddhist of you. I'm just like, yeah, I just do it. And I'm like, boop, put it out there. And that's what I do. Yeah,
1: so you will just have to splice the second, the second half of the podcast. and. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's all good um <laughs> but i kind of lost where we were we were talking we we're talking community we were talking your delicious smelling food you're we talking about and i don't know we were in the middle of something yeah
1: i can't remember what we were talking about that's really sad because i was like oh my god i lost it somebody somebody called through and i tried to like not let them call through but i yeah. said i hung up on you. so i, I don't I- but <laughs> i don't exactly know how that happened so, oh, we were talking about hardcore community mental health. So I guess we're talking about, we want to get to the mental health section of this.
0: Sure. And what you're doing your PhD on because. Woo! Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I always wanted to do a PhD. I always had that in my mind since I was an undergraduate, but I just, I didn't really, I'm moving Kittree. I really didn't have the, um, the. I didn't have this support. I lived at the temple. My parents were both remarried and had small, like, little kids. Yeah. And they were just really happy that I was, like, out of the house. And so they didn't really – I think they were also kind of, like, financially taxed out. And they didn't really have the – they didn't have the knowledge that I could probably apply to someplace and get funding. I just didn't have anybody – backing me in addition to which I was like living in the ashram so I just didn't have anyone who was like hey why don't you apply for funding or like apply to some schools and I wasn't very particularly focused at the time I was like kind of like should I be in a band and also because I was a Hare Krishna devotee the only way for me to be with my this and and it was really funny because like five minutes later everybody was just like didn't do it but at the time I thought like if I didn't do what the temple authorities told me i had to do that i would be like kicked out of the temple so i got married like when i was really really young because that's what they told me to do yeah. and that reason the result of that was i didn't i did not you know um go to graduate school <laughs> yeah and um it wasn't terrible. I had then. I had my kids really pretty young. I got married. I had the kids pretty young, and um, I basically kind of set that down. But it stayed with me the whole entire time. Like I never gave up on thinking that I might do it. Yeah. How old are and, your? Sorry. Uh, how old am I? Or my? No, kids- your
0: kids. Your kids.
1: Okay. So my son is twenty-one. I have a one daughter that is. 20, almost
0: 24 and one that's almost 28. oh my gosh okay we I have three kids too
1: oh my god are you like my son double or what I think so.
0: <laughs> mine are a little bit a little bit younger I have a, a 23 21 and uh 16.
1: yeah so I basically never gave up on the hope of of doing this project of, of you know getting a PhD So I just as soon as my son went to school the next day i started school
0: that's awesome so what so did I you get like, your master's get out
1: in. of the house i'm going for it
0: yeah what did you get your master's in
1: so you- i'm still finishing my master's right now and it's in cultural anthropology and i'm writing a feminist analysis of the power structure of iscon <laughs> wow yeah nobody's none of the leadership is uh, actually a lot of people really want to read it but um So it's a little bit of pressure to really do a good job, but it's funny because I think people are a little worried about what I'm going to say, which they should be. No, just kidding. (laughs) Um, I mean, they wouldn't be worried if they didn't know that there was, you know, like this uber patriarchy power structure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, even, even I will tell you that some of the people that, you know, everybody thinks it's like this wonderful, hardcore guy and, you know, fantastic devotee person and blah, 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 are the people who have said things to me like, I just think a guy needs to be doing that. And you're oh, like, Really? I yeah, know. Do you play guitar with your genitalia? Yeah. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that still gets said to me. And without really any kind of like, no sense of no kind of self-awareness so yeah. that's really interesting to me i'm like all right i hear you i see ya. you know, yeah. it's like kind of interesting um and you know it's just it's still something i'm 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 working through and it's still happening and you know of course it's not like the rest of the world isn't a crazy patriarchy so it's not particularly miscom, but it is definitely you know worse than it's kind because you have people that are working really 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 hard and you know like we have like the the sort of liberal americans who are like letting letting power structures exist yeah but they're not working really only like you know like the worst conservative jerks are like making the power structures like like they're they're like they're not embarrassed to say like i think america should be a white country you know yeah it's kind you have you have the leadership who are very, a lot of the leadership and it's not all of them who are really conservative and they're saying that too. Right. It's just like, God damn it. You know, this isn't, this isn't my tradition. This isn't what I signed up for. I didn't sign up to become subjugated. Totally. My plan, you know, and, um, and you have the people that are, you know, benefiting from that, who are at the very top of the structure and they're if you you might not have noticed this about me, or know, known enough about Krishna consciousness to know, but like I've never been invited to teach at a Iskan temple.
0: I did not know that, and that makes yeah. me very that makes me very sad.
1: Yeah. So I have. I'm here. I'm in academia. I am busting my butt to be an, a mother and help run Equal Vision and all that stuff. And there's no one that thinks. I wonder if she has anything to say in fact the very opposite is true so you're just kind of like wow all right so and the only women that get asked to teach or anything are like the ones that are like you know basically Sarah Palin style people yeah so people that are like women who are maintaining and helping contribute to patriarchal power structure mm-hmm. continuation you know yeah so it's like you know it's kind of a bummer <laughs> It is a bummer. I've had, I've had swamis try to mansplain academia to me who have never gone to college. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm literally in the middle of doing this, uh, a PhD. Yeah. I actually do know more than you and that's okay. But like, why are you trying to, what's happening right now? What's even happening to me right now? You know, it's like watching it happen it's just interesting because they have 100% confidence. Even my college professors, because you know, I'm like coming back, everyone's young. Like I'm like not totally with it with all like the new ways of thinking about things and new theoretical frameworks. And I'm definitely was a feminism, you know, second wave feminist and that's not true anymore, but you know, things are all new and I'm so happy because I've like updated my my theories and everything. But he said to me one time, my, one of my favorite professors, you know, you just need to develop the confidence of a mediocre white male, and you'll be happy. <laughs> He's like, just when you're when you're doubting yourself and you have imposter syndrome, think about a mediocre white man as your counterpart, and just act like they did. I've even I even had it recently at a yoga training. I was like, you know, I'm the teacher. Yeah, and there's like a guy, you know, who's new, very sweet. Not he wasn't even like the most horrific version of it, and he was like, you know, just felt very confident to to kind of tell me what was up, and I was just like, let's think about that for a minute. You know, but <laughs> it's interesting see, seeing how much how prevalent it still is, and I think that even the even like the best guys have to really struggle against that because. The society is set up for their you know it's set up for them to benefit and you know they have to work hard you know and they do i think a lot of them do you know it's just yeah it's just interesting also though you know seeing how much it still exists and so i was fighting against a lot of that at that time and i'm that's why i you know i was reading this bell hooks article and i got to i was like fortunate enough to hear her lecture at the new school when i was there but she basically said, she she writes an article called, um, it's called theory as sort of theory as a methodology for healing trauma. Mm. And I was just like, yes, that is exactly what I'm trying to do is to have a theoretical framework to get through this, to understand what has happened to me where I'm seeking this path of liberation and then it became this, just this like, you know, in some ways, a really horrific, um, like oppressive society. You know where, yeah. And it was it was straight up oppression or just being ignored. Hmm. And I was already kind of like, you know, people. You know, I was already like at the time in hardcore, like the only girl in a band. Yeah. I think we played with like we if we played sixty shows and there were five five to six bands a show. You know, imagine, I don't know what that is, but it's a lot of kids. Yeah. Five or six kids in a band. You know, it's like, I don't know what the math of that is, but it's its a good number. And there was one other female and it was a singer of Ashes mm. that I saw on the entire tour. Maybe there was one more, maybe. I think I would remember.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest, like, I don't remember seeing any, like, you were the only person I remember seeing that was female yeah so you're like
1: in the middle of that and you have you have like even like you know the coolest left-wing abc no rio dudes being like she's pretty good for a girl you know kind of situation and yeah um you know all of this self-doubt and the just the the angst around trying to like fulfill the you know trying to represent all women musicians because if you weren't good enough then They were going to decide that women in general were just terrible. And you were like, ah, you know, it's just like a lot of like that probably took more. You know, that probably was was a harder thing to Mm -hmm. to wrap my head around than. than just like the angst of touring, you know, that was like that was the harder version of it.
0: Right. You had to take on a lot for for women.
1: Yeah, it was a lot. I, I look back and I'm like, "You poor little thing." Yeah, I love you. You did so good. <laughs> you know, if I see pictures of my 21 year old self, I'm like, "You did so good." Oh, I love You that. made it. You you kind of surrendered to these temple authority, and you you know you did all these things, and and I I made it, and I survived, and then you know I I took care of my kids, and I raised my kids, and I. Made sure their education was like the most important thing, and I, I sacrificed, you know, having, I, I sacrificed a lot, you know. And then I'm like, gosh, I I did okay, you know. Maybe I'll kind of like look at my younger self and feel good about that now. But you know, it was really sure. hard. Plus, it, the other thing too is like now I'm like, yeah, I'm never gonna be as good of a guitar player as Vic D'Onora. He's like probably one of the great hardcore guitar oh God, players yeah. of. So like, there's no competing with that. Yeah. And that's not just me. That's like me and 90% of the people playing guitar and hardcore. Like right. he's just a different level, you know?
0: No, for sure. And, you know. So
1: then I kind of let that go. And now I kind of, now I really enjoy it a lot more. Like I'm not going to be on his level. It's okay. And that's okay. You know, so yeah, just a different, you know, you start to change your, your mindset around it and it's it's all right
0: yeah that's really yeah. beautiful like you yeah. like I had a lot of stuff come up for me when you were saying that. yeah <laughs> I mean
1: you're just like I mean I was trying to hold up the whole like the weight of re- representing my entire gender as a guitar player and you know and then as and then you know in, within ISKCON I always try to pushed back against the, the sexism and the, you know, unequal power structure. And some of it was pretty traumatizing, you know, and it's it's really interesting, too, because I feel to some degree, like when people hear me talk about it, they're like, Oh, not this again. And you're like, Yeah, but it's not over yet. And yeah, this, it's is my, not over. Yeah, this is my real embodied existence of like, you know, what's it like to be, you know, I joined maybe two years after like, you know, like Raghunath, for instance, and yeah. the red carpet is rolled out to him by every one of the senior devotees, and th- I've never been invited. I know. It's just so so- like you know, at a certain point, you're just like, I don't need a seat at the table. I'm just gonna have a, my own table over here. I'm gonna just yes. do my own thing, you know, because, and and I have managed to do that, and that was really through, um, that was through the lens and the. The experience of meeting women from other ashrams. And we were like, we had each other's back. So instead of it being this thing where, you know, there were like this seat, no seat at the table for women, we just literally made our own table. And they were yeah. always at a different, they were always at their own table. They never were part of a structure like, you know, um, like I was. Yeah. So, so they, they were like, oh, do you want to come with us? And I, you know, so it really was a healing practice for me to, to find my place in that, in that different space, still a bhakti space, but a one that, you know, and so this is interesting because my master's paper is, is the title of it is not totally fixed, but it's something like you're the, you're not this body until you are. And then it's looking at, you know, how women experience that they are treated because of their bodies. Yeah. Um, and and how the embodied, you know, how so much of like tradition is supposed to reside in the female body and the the maintenance of the rules and regulations resides in the female body. And the female body is like so much is put on you because you're in this body and you're like, hang on a second. But I thought we're not the bodies.
0: Right. Wow. But I, I unless you're a female body and then you're like
1: <laughs> and then you're you know, you're supposed to uphold tradition and you're supposed to, you know, all of all the. the the sexual, you know, in indiscretions that happen, we're always blamed on women, you know, Mm -hmm. they were the temptress and the adulteress and you're just like, that's not it, you know, and all of these things. And those stem, they stem from the teachings of the founder Acharya, unfortunately. And that's difficult to say because I think he did so much wonderful stuff, but there's some pretty rough things that he wrote about women that, I refuse to brush under the rug because they really mean something to me and yeah um and they mean something to also to my daughters and I didn't want my daughters to have a different access to bhakti yoga than my son that just seems really insane yeah um and so those things I feel like they have to be taken out and they have to be examined and they have to look at like what are the true consequences of that for people hmm. what does that really mean if you're in a female body and you're being told that you're like essentially the the you know even i mean even like the story of the garden of eden you know Mm -hmm. man is in paradise and then when he gets tempted by by a woman then paradise is lost i mean
0: yeah you live
1: with a that's not just a story to women that's like you live with the weight of that in every cell of your being i agree just so so part of me going back was to get the language and the understanding and to engage with literature and all you know, these great anthropologists like Sherry ortner or modern you know modern anthropologists uh, um wait hold on a second I will tell you uh Sabah Mahmoud and um some other ones there's a, a great book called labor of faith which talks about how women in this is in um in evangelical Christian churches, just in Queens, it's the focus is studied on that they do all the they do all the late emotional labor, they do all the physical labor. And there's like a male preacher who just comes in, and he's like the figurehead, and they're holding the weight of the entire society with no acknowledgement. And I was like, that sounds familiar, you know, because you have women, women who are, you know, kind of making everything happen. And you know, and yet there's not, they don't, there's no position of leadership. And it's not like I want to become a leader in ISKCON, but I feel like the, my natural propensity was entirely ignored because they just categorized me as a female. Mm-hmm. And there's straight up things, straight up, mo- multiple things that, um, where women are called less intelligent. Mm-hmm. No, I... And, yeah, and I, if men if men get a ha- a hold of that and they want power, they just wield that mm-hmm. and it, it, it's weaponized against and it's it's not accurate. Right. I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than some men and not as smart as some men. I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm smarter than some women and not as smart as some women. Yeah. I mean it's just not it's just not a gender specific intelligence isn't a g- gender specific you know, quality—it's just ridiculous. Right. But it was—it was we—it was, we- was weaponized against women and used to suppress them emotionally and also sometimes physically and um, in terms of positions and positions and and things like that. And um, you know, uh, I I might actually have to just take one of these books. So, and, and Sherry Ortner is is an anthropologist who I, I truly love. But she writes about um, uh, she writes about women in the state, you know, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and she writes about the ideological, um, like, requirement of women to be virgins when they get married and things yeah. like that, and why you know they're basically trying. It's all control mechanisms.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And th- this is also talked about in the movie Origin. Yeah. And she, she talks about how, you know, when, when women, the way of suppressing women is to just to other them, to give them qualities, to create taboos around their bodies, mm-hmm. to control their access to to resources and to an education and everything like that. I mean, it's just exactly what they do is exactly the same mechanism, structural mechanisms that you use to create slavery. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just a historical fact.
0: Yeah.
1: And she talks about the, the near universal fact of female subjugation in all societies. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, that's sort of second wave feminism. And then later feminism says, yeah, but women still actually find ways to express agency within that, within those systems of subjugation. So she doesn't want to just, you know, like, Saba Mahmoud, she doesn't want to just give up on the fact that women are still fighting, despite the fact that there's always the subjugation trying to be, you know, meted out to them. So, you know, I just felt like I needed some I need an intellectual framework to to manage through that and to write about it and process it. Because for me, theory has been a really healing thing. Yeah, and a way and a way to the other side. Mm -hmm. And also just a way to claim my own space within a tradition that is in many other ways really fulfilling to me.
0: Yeah, wow. That was like, it's so thought provoking. I, um, you know, I, I talked to uh, Joe Clement, uh a few weeks ago and I he was like, man, you have a lot of letters behind your name. Like he was making some joke about it. And I was like, I, I think as a woman, like I've constantly felt like I'm like a sham or like I need to prove myself as an intellect. And so I'm constantly like, I have three master's degrees. Like I'm constantly going back to school because, yeah. you know, because I, because I have to, you know, cause I feel like if I don't, no one's going to take me seriously. Like having this is going to make me legitimate, you know, then I think that that's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Um, in ISKCON and, in you know, I don't, I don't know that, like, I mean, I, my uh, husband is also, he's a Hare Krishna, uh different mat, but, you know, even talking about it within, in his tradition. So it's just, it's interesting. It's and I, not
1: only, it's, it's, it's much worse than that, actually. It's yeah. not just that nobody's talking about it. It's that there are people in leadership who are specifically working very hard to suppress women and I would say there's a strong, really disastrous component of like colonial mindset because yeah. what is called ISKCON India is actually a bunch of white men in their 70s, late 70s, yeah. or early Prabhupada disciples, and they're create they're making policy suppressive, like qualities of or, or uh, policies of subjugation that are specifically meant to make sure women are not not initiate you know, have no yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Well aware. It's not good.
1: And there's and there's social people are afraid of the social death that it could cause. They don't Mm want to be shunned. They don't want to be kicked out of their entire social world. So they 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 comply. Right. Because they're terrified of losing everything else that's dear to them. Yeah. You know, and some some women walk away. But there are now five different women who are initiating. In ISKCON and people, and they're just doing it underground. And I'm like, just come rise up to the surface and be like, I'm initiating, because people don't even know that's happening. And they're also doing it. They're they're still. It's. I think it's a really important step, but they're still hiding behind the the name of a male guru. Yeah. Even though they're initiating, so yeah. I'm like, just there is nothing about. Actually, I think in many ways, and 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 according to some of some of the senior women, you know, the women that were joined in the early days it's more traditional for women to be gurus in villages because they know everything that's going on mm-hmm. they know your children they know what's happening their community their community based. and those that's what the role of the gurus originally was mm-hmm. was this very kind of like a teacher in your community yeah probably a lot like modern therapists. people would come <laughs> to them with problems and yeah and issues and they would get They would get advice and they would get listened to and they would have a a place to express themselves. But yeah, so you have, you know, and I've kind of divorced myself from being like involved with the institution on that level, but like tons of my friends are devotees. Like I don't know. I almost can't leave. Where do I go? I get that. Totally. You're in. It's like Hotel California, you know, you (laughs) just can't you can't really leave. But but I'm 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 willing to do things, but I feel like things should be critiqued and they should be really oppressed things should be dismantled and just set aside now. And I yeah. that's not it. You know, people are so afraid of changing the words of the guru, but I'm like, what if they're harmful? Yeah. 100%. Why can't we just you know, if some of the words are harmful and they're harmful and they're trauma, they cause trauma. Yeah. Why are we why can't we leave them in the book and put a asterisk and say this is no longer the viewpoint of in the modern world this writer was writing in the 1950s yeah um, it's you know just like if you might read like poems by carl sandberg or you might read you know different if you read like tom sawyer or you you know you read those books like some of the stuff in there is like really racist yeah the like but it's not that you throw tom sawyer out but you read it with awareness of what that is and you yeah. talk about it and so if you have things that are like very sexist, why not talk about it and talk about why that might have been the viewpoint but now we no longer believe that way and we understand that that was that was harmful to women yeah and girls and also to the boys yeah 100%. it's harmful to them yeah because they're they don't some of them do, some of them don't want to stick stick around because they don't want to be part of it right and some of them that stick around it's really not healthy to be like part of an abusive si- system like yeah. it's not good for you no definitely so, yeah so those are all the things that i think about like pretty much swirling through my brain at all times <laughs> sometimes i exhaust myself i'm like oh i just need to sleep <laughs>
0: No, I got that. Uh, I feel bad because I know I'm like, we'll be an hour and it's over an hour. So I want I mean, I would love to have you come on again, if you would like to talk about this again anything again. Yes, sure.
1: Sure. I I would love to.
0: I would love to. Yeah, I'm gonna I have
1: tonight we're having the I'm having the graduate student (laughs) gathering at my house so I should go and and get the things together that I thought I was getting together. (laughs) But no, it's um, all good. One, one thing about I saw this film Origin last night, which makes yeah. this. It's this woman. She wrote. She wrote a book called um about caste and about American ca- caste and American society and all these different things. And she basically, but it's sort of like the perfect, the perfect feminist anthropological film because it allows her to be herself. It shows aspects of her. Of her personal life, her relationship with her sister—all of those things are part of feminist anthropology. Like, yeah. we're real people; we're human beings. We have things happening. This is what's happening in our life. But she also, she also um, makes the connection between um, the Holocaust, which mm-hmm. it turns out was conceived of by studying American law that that um, was in place to keep slavery legal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: so and also the the caste system in india and uh, i've been reading some really um, reading this book annihilation of caste which is like right here it's yeah. backwards but um <laughs> uh, and also another book called the trauma of caste which is a mm. feminist analysis and it's really really interesting because yeah we have to kind of we have to start to think about what all what are all these systems that we have in place and you're trying to have this utopian society which is iscon and you're claiming it's a utopian society and you're telling people come join our utopian society except if you're female yeah <laughs> ha, 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 yeah on you for Here, sure here's your place at the back of the room you know and those right. things there's a whole development of that but it's time for that to end now and allow women and all people and i'm sure there's casteist things happening that i haven't even been aware of you know because i might not be tuning into that but how do we allow, you know, if we're gonna have a society that's not based on bodies, yeah. Let's do it then. For sure. You know, so that's my I guess that's my final thing, you know. I
0: love that. If you want people people want to get a hold of you, how do you want them to get a hold of you? Um
1: it's probably easiest through Instagram. They can yeah. message me. That's really like, you know, I get, I check my messages and I get messaged through there. So they're welcome to do that. And, awesome. you know, I'd love to hear from anybody and any feedback or whatever. You know, yeah. I, I always like to hear from people. So please message me on Instagram and I will respond. And thank you so much for having thank me. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I am so grateful for spending this time with you.
1: Yeah. I'm it was very, really fun. Happy.
0: Yeah, for sure. If you wanna get a hold of me, it's the Hardcore Therapist at Instagram, the Hardcore Therapist uh, at Gmail.com or my website, the Hardcore Therapist. Any merchandise you buy from my site is a hundred percent of that goes to um, people who are uninsured and underinsured to get mental health. So thank you again. Wow, I love
1: it. That's so Thanks.
0: cool. <laughs> all right, I'll right, talk to you soon. Take care. Okay.
1: Bye bye.